I'm Jonathan Capehart, and welcome to Capehart. A Strange Loop by Michael R. Jackson bills itself as a, quote, big, black, and queer-ass American musical. It's big, all right. Not only did the critically acclaimed play win the Pulitzer Prize for Drama in 2020, but the show about a black gay man dreaming of writing a musical only to be hounded by his own thoughts was also nominated for 11 Tony Awards, the most on Broadway this season. And at the ceremony on June 12th, Michael R. Jackson and his work won big. He took home the Tony for Best Book of a Musical and A Strange Loop won the Tony for Best Musical. Sadly, the show will close on January 15th, but in this encore conversation, first recorded on June 9th, just days before the Tonys, for Washington Post Live, I asked Michael R. Jackson how all the raves and the nominations felt. It feels really good. And it feels good because it it seems like a validation of all the time that was put into making it. Like, I, I started this piece right before um, America went to war with Iraq. I went through oh, two wow. terms, two Obama terms, the beginning of the Trump term. Like, so much has happened. And I kept writing this piece. So let's jump right on uh, right on into this. The protagonist of A Strange Loop is a theater usher named Usher. And here's how Variety describes him, and by extension, the play. Quote, as a protagonist, Usher wrestles with ambition, expression, shame, lust, self-loathing, and parental expectations. He shares his complicated, cutting feelings about everything from homophobic Christian teachings to the white gaytriarchy to Tyler Perry. Uh, Usher shares these complicated feelings through six thoughts. Describe the thoughts and, and how he copes with them. Um, the thoughts are an ensemble of six. Uh, they sort of portray everybody in the world sort of abstractly and concretely. Uh, there are characters that are sort of embody his daily self-loathing. Um, there's a character called Financial Bagotry. Um, there's a character who's called the supervisor of uh, your sexual ambivalence. Uh, and um, there's also, they play, you know, his parents, his brother, his ba- his brother's baby mama, um, a character called Sympathetic Ear who gives him like really good advice. Just sort of the gamut of people uh, who Usher sort of both meets in real life and also thinks about and dramatizes. All right, so let's go back to the beginning, to 2003, when A Strange Loop was a monologue called Why I Can't Get Work. Why and how did it evolve over the last 18 years? It, you know, that original monologue was really sort of me at that time. I was 23 years old and just trying to make a little life raft for myself. And, and, a, and a really sort of uncertain time in my life. I felt unseen, I felt unheard, I felt misunderstood. And that monologue was just uh, an attempt to sort of make some sort of sense out of what was going on. And and I just was so interested in the themes that I was exploring that when I began writing songs, once I went to grad school, and those songs still had that same sense of searching of self, that it just made sense for them to feed into the monologue and then that mon- and then that sort of alchemy sort of started a whole uh, process of evolving into the musical. 
So um, loops are infinite, um, mm -hmm. but all musicals must come to an end. What creative challenges did you face writing the conclusion of A Strange Loop? It was very difficult because I was drawn from personal experience to try to write this fictional story, but I didn't really know what Usher's problem was. And I didn't know what Usher's problem was because I didn't know what my problem was. And it took me many years of writing and rewriting and stopping and starting and therapy and all these things to come to the conclusion that actually Usher's problem was that he had no problem because he sort of viewed himself as a problem. And it wasn't until that he realized that he wasn't a problem that he actually would change. And that sort of, I had to get to that place in my own life to have any kind of objectivity about the story that I was trying to tell. Mm -hmm. and, and, one big, and one big change um, that A Strange Loop took in the 18-year in the journey was how it actually starts. Before, correct me if I'm wrong, before um, the opening scene was Usher dealing with the hustle and bustle of, of patrons in and coming into the theater for a performance. Now, uh, the start of Strange Loop, the, the hustle and bustle around Usher aren't the patrons, it's, his, it's the thoughts. That's right. You know, and that sort of sets the stage for the kind of um, structure that you're seeing Usher deal with throughout the piece, which is that the line between art and reality is very blurry. And, and I sort of, once I realized that the thoughts had to be the audience's way into the piece, that really set a lot of things in motion. All right, so the, the play, as I said uh, at the, the opening, is billed as, quote, the big black and queer ass American musical. But Michael, you have a song in the show called Inner White Girl. We have a clip of it. Uh, let's okay. take a look. We'll talk about it on the other side. White girls can do anything, can they? Black boys must always obey their mothers. White girls can do anything, can they? Can they? Can they? Can they? Make it to be cool, tall, vulnerable, and luscious. Make it to be wild and unwise. Make it to be shy and introspective. Make it to make no mistake, it to mesmerize. Black boys don't get to be In the legal profession, what I'm about to ask you would be called a leading question. So, Michael, why can't Usher be, quote, vulnerable and luscious, wild and unwise, like a white girl? Well, the answer is that he can't. He just doesn't know it yet. Um, he has to sort of get to the place where he's giving himself permission to be as free as, as he wants to be and as free as his, you know, art would allow him to be and beyond. Um, but at that particular point in the musical, he's still sort of stuck in this mindset that he can't uh, be, you know, quote unquote, like the, the white girls who can do anything in their uh, music, you, in their life, and in their art. 
Right. You told Newsweek that you hope to, quote, open people's eyes to different representations of black men, adding, quote, I definitely am somebody who's interested in widening the, the lanes for all black representations and black male representation in particular. Talk more about that. Yeah, I mean, I think certainly, you know, in culture and art and entertainment, there tends to be, in my view, really limited representations, whether that's by, you know, design. I, I'm, it's not like I'm trying to prescribe what the representation is, but I definitely notice that I don't always see Black male representation really running a full, full gamut, which also means having representations that might actually bother people or might challenge their, you know, what they want to see. I don't, I don't, and I'm just interested in seeing the whole rainbow. And that's what I loved. I should just say, matter of full disclosure, I have seen a strange loop. We'll talk more about that in, in a moment. But one of the brilliant ways of showing that representation is through those six thoughts, mm -hmm. um, where you see six different representations of, of Blackness um, and in, in most cases of black maleness. And, you know, and then you have Usher, who is completely different from, from all of those. So that's what I, I loved about the six thoughts. We got to talk about something, something else you do in this play. And that is, well, Tyler Perry. So in, so in, in the play, Usher's parents want him to write a Tyler Perry style gospel play, but he's not too, he doesn't like that idea. And what also his and and his what? Yes, that's right, his agent. Right, his agent. So what does Tyler Perry represent to Usher? And why was it so important for you to address Tyler Perry specifically? Well, you know, the answer to that, because a lot of people over the years, and I think even I have sort of like had to think even more deeply about this um, from where I started to where I am now. There are a lot of people who think that like I have like this like personal vendetta against him, which it isn't, though in the piece it may come out, come across that way through Usher. But it's really about actually taking Tyler Perry's work very seriously. And because it's, and, and doing that because it's often uh, held up often by black uh, communities as sort of like the, the end all be all of what one can do as a black artist because he has cultivated such a large audience and he's a billionaire. And so therefore whatever he's doing is what everybody else should be doing. And I've heard like a variation of this idea over the years. And, and I just think that I just wanted to sort of problematize that and, and satirize that and, and just explore what what it would mean to sort of like reckon with his work and 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 try to form uh, another idea outside of that through Usher, who's so obsessed with trying to write what he terms real life. And he feels that Tyler doesn't write real life. And so he wants to to sort of go up against, you know, the Goliath and and see what he can do, see what he can make. So, so when I was you know, listening to all the references to, to Tyler Perry, to my mind, I thought, wow, Michael R. Jackson is out there having this conversation through this play about Tyler Perry that seems to be going on in the larger Black community about Tyler Perry. On the one hand, there are folks like, yeah, he's the pinnacle of success. 
he's a billionaire. He's done all these movies. And then you have other people in the black community who are like, oh my God, Tyler Perry, what are you doing to us with these cartoonish characters, cartoonish right. characters in your, uh, in your movies? And in, yeah, in your movies. Am I, am I getting that also, right? Well, the movies, TV, the stage plays, I've seen all of it. So like, um, you know, he's known to most people as like, you know, the filmmaker or the TV person, but he started off writing stage plays and and building his audience. And, and I saw some of those very early, um, you know, in my career and when I was younger, and I just was very mystified by them. But they also reminded me of like church plays from back home. And so when I would hear people say things like, oh, I love his work because it's real life, I felt like this weird disconnect because I was like, this is, this is many things, but real life it's not. <laughs> right, right. Um, let's talk about another song. Um, this one um, is called Memory Song. The lyrics shift from one lone black gay boy I knew who chose to turn his back on the Lord, then sh shifts from that to all those black gay boys I knew who chose to go back on the, who chose to go on back to the Lord. Break down what you're doing there. Yeah, so that song uh, is its own strange loop because it began inspired by a friend of mine who I went to graduate school with who had written a song about being a young black gay man who um, was sort of having like uh, a conflict between his sexuality and, and, and sort of religious upbringing or something. And I just was really struck by it. And so in my notebook, I was watching him perform the song in the class and I wrote in my notebook, all those black gay boys I knew to who, who chose to go on back to the Lord. And I wrote that because it reminded me of boys that I knew back home who were constantly having this sort of like a back and forth with themselves where they would like have sexual encounters with other men or young boy or or young, young other teens or older, older men. And then they'd like go and pray for forgiveness. And it was this whole cycle. And, and I was very interested in that. And, but then I thought about myself, who also was coming out, but I wasn't really, the conflict was that I needed to get away from the sort of religious overtones of everything. And so I wanted to sort of celebrate sort of this community that I was from, but also that I felt a little set apart from in a way. But then also what ended up happening just in the general arc of the show was that the very friend who had inspired the song like 15 years ago passed away from AIDS-related complications because he had been sort of hiding his HIV diagnosis and had not been seeking med medical treatment for it and things sort of came to a head. And, and suddenly that song changed like with, without me even having to do anything. And so there's this, I for me personally, how I experience it, is that there's, you know, Usher, you know, who chose to turn his back on the sort of the the ideology that he was raised with. And then there's his, you know, cousin Darnell, you know, who was sort of consumed by the fire of that ideology. And and I just sort of wanted to show that that, that duality. One of the things that has stayed with me, the word that has stayed with me ever since I saw a strange loop 
is the word subversive. And subversive in a really good, in, in a good way. Um, that I've, I found there are a lot of things about a strange loop that pull you in, in one way, but then the more you, you take it in, the more you realize, oh, wait a minute, what's happening here? And nothing symbolized that more <laughs> than the gospel number uh, mm-hmm. in the show where the refrain, and it's a full-on gospel number, church road, choir, the whole thing, yeah. people in the audience are clapping, but at one point, I was like, do y'all know what you're clapping to? Because the refrain in the gospel song is, AIDS is God's punishment. Yes. Can you, can you please? Yes. <laughs> Go ahead. AIDS is God's punishment. Yes. That's what the lyric is. <laughs> and, and, and so, just as a playwright, were you surprised that the audience continues to clap through this song that is just filled with damnation. Well, I I don't I wouldn't say that I'm surprised. That's not the word I would use. I would say I'm curious because they're invited to clap. They're invited to have whatever authentic re- uh, response that that they they want to that moment because that's also what Usher is creating as he's making this gospel number and this gospel play, um, because he's trying to sort of show what it feels like to be a young black gay man in that sort of environment. And what it feels like is beautiful music that makes you wanna clap, but also hateful ideology. And so putting those two things together creates a, a third thing that the audience has to deal with. And that's sort of the cognitive dissonance of of those two things coming together and the joy and the pain of it. And like, I don't have any sort of um, judgment upon how people respond to that because that's when they really get to be a part of the show Mm -hmm. and they get Mm -hmm. to be a part of it however they want. And they, they also get to look at their neighbor and like have a feeling about that. And their neighbor can look at them and have a feeling about that. And that creates a whole other loop that goes up, that energy goes to the stage, it comes back and the audience is fully in it. And so I find it thrilling, to be honest. Mm -hmm. Because it's always different every night. Uh Uh-huh. Let's talk about Chuck Wells Spivey. Um, He plays Usher. And in an Mm -hmm. interview, he corrected a reporter who who said, you had, quote, written a role that's based around the Black queer experience. And Chuck Wells corrected him and said, I think we have to be specific the fat black queer experience. Why is this an important distinction? Well, because it's it's because of, you know, the representations out there of, you know, black gay men, they usually tend to be, you know, Instagram thirst traps and um, sort of very uh, conventional body types. And I think an important part of the story is for a lot of, there are a, quite a lot of black gay men out there and black queer people out there who are not, you know, a size zero and and for whom their bodies, um, as much as that's like such a part of how we as queer people express ourselves, there's a lot of rejection. And, and, I, and I think that it was just important for people to see that and to feel that because it's very easy to dismiss um, you know, in in this sort of Instagram thirst trap world that we live in. Mm-hmm. And the one and, and the one thing, and we we um, showed 
uh, in the inner white girl um, piece that we showed, you can see Jacquel. And Jacquel is unlike any other Broadway leading man right now or ever. A fat, black, queer man in a leading role. And he's nominated for a Tony. That's right. Um, we've never, there's never been anyone like him in, in, at that level on the Broadway stage, has there? There has not. And he's only 23 years old. He is. He just turned 23 in November, yeah. And just graduated from college last year. Yeah, he's, he's incredible. And then talk, talk about why this, this young person was able to capture your imagination and fill out the role of Usher. Uh, it's because he brings such an incredible vulnerability and openness and intelligence to this, this role. He, um, he really, and it's also because Jack Quell, the person, knows his own boundaries, that he's willing to go super far with Usher. And like, he knows where us, he begins and Usher ends. And so he's willing to, to sort of paint all the colors of this character with everything inside of him uh, to, that he draws on to, to make this character. And so, and it's really, it's just, it's super thrilling because Jack Quell is just one of those actors, actors. He's just really, really dialed in and just so smart and so creative, um, so in musical. I, as I mentioned before, I have seen A Strange Loop. Not only have I seen A Strange Loop, I was in the audience on the very first night it was performed on the Broadway stage at previews. The, the energy in the audience was off the charts. But there were, at the end of the show, the ovation lasted for longer than five minutes. Um, I think it was the director who came out and talked about the number of Broadway debuts that happened that night, including Jacquel's. Um, and now he's nominated for a Tony. Another Broadway debut that night, and correct me if I'm wrong, was L. Morgan Lee, who mm-hmm. is the first out transgender person ever nominated for, for a, to- uh, a Tony, for a leading, leading actress. That's right. Well, in, no, in, in a musical. Featured Featured actress, featured actress. What does it mean to you to not only have created a musical that has captured the imagination of Broadway, but has has fostered these careers with so many Broadway debuts, so many Tony nominations, and for a lot of folks, their first one. It really means the world to me, not just because of, you know, the representations that are up there, which to be clear, that's like so important for people to see and for other people to see and to to have to look up to. But it's just because most of this cast has been with me working on this piece, some of them for about 14 years. Mm-hmm. And they stayed with me and stayed with me and developed this piece and developed this piece. And their talent has been sort of hidden, you know, for, from, you know, from from the world for so long. And so for these folks like Ellen Morgan, Lee, for John Andrew Morrison to be recognized for what I had seen in them for all these years, it is just the, one of the joys of my life. 
because that's how it should be. Like the really great people should be able to have opportunities to sort of rise to the top. And that's what we're seeing with them and so many other people nominated in our show. Um, so Michael, you are a black gay playwright who graduated from NYU and once worked as an usher on Broadway and dealt with conservative religious parents, just like your main character, Usher. But you say A Strange Loop is not autobiographical. Come on. It's not. because like, I guess the, the best way I could describe it is that if I were, I'm not comparing myself to Picasso, but if I were Picasso and I made a self-portrait that was like really sort of distorted, and then I showed that to you, and would you say that's an autobiography or is that like a perception? It's a self-portrait. It's something different than, you know, it's not I know why the cage bird sings. That's that's more one-to-one -one ratio of events to real life. I definitely drew from personal experience to, to write the show, but I fictionalized quite a lot. There's things I moved around because it made for a better story. And, but also the character himself is somebody who's dealing with his own distorted point of view. And so he's just showing you what he sees through the lens of self-hatred. And so is that is that real? Is it reality? Is it is it what is it? I think it's something different. So I think that autobiography, if I were to use it, I would say emotionally autobiographical because I'm just writing what it feels like, whether that's actually what's true, a cinema verite in front of you. No, it's not that, but it's what it, it feels like that. It feels like his parents are like that. It feels like men on Grinder are like that. It feels like his agent and Tyler Perry and all these things. That's what it feels like. And and to some degree, if it feels like that, that's what it is. Um, Michael, last question for you. You told Newsweek, um, you've never seen your story represented on, on stage. Um, what does it mean to you to have a play of your own on stage, but not just on stage, but receiving rave reviews and sitting on 11 Tony nominations? It feels really good. And it feels good because it, it seems like a validation of all the time that was put into making it. I mean, years and years and hours and blood, sweat and tears, false starts and stops, um, a pandemic, uh, an out of town <laughs> tryout, you know, all, all the things that have happened in the world, the various changes in my own life. Like I, I started this piece right before um, America went to war with Iraq. I went through oh, two wow. terms, two Obama terms, the beginning of the Trump term, like so much has happened. And I kept writing this piece. And so for it to be recognized after all of that feels like such a win, um, especially because we live in such a product oriented, you know, time and everybody wants to be number one right out the gate and all this stuff. I, I love, I'm proud of the fact that I had like 18 years to spend essentially on one work of art to try to make it be as good as I possibly could make it and to share it with people. And that what people are feeling that they are resonating with it is that it's something that's really well made and of high quality. And that's something that I feel very strongly about as an artist.
Well, as someone who has seen A Strange Loop, um, it is well made. It is of high quality. It is grounded in truth, which is which will make it timeless. Michael R. Jackson, Pulitzer Prize winning writer of A Strange Loop, thank you so much for coming to Kpart on Washington Post Live. Thank you, Jonathan. Thanks for listening to Kpart. It's produced by Nick Roberts. We'll have new episodes for you every Tuesday. I'm Jonathan Capehart. You can find me on Twitter at CapehartJ.